Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2020. My name is Amato, and with me are... Tori. And Dom. And unfortunately, this is the second time we've been talking about this same fanfic, because technical issues made us lose the vast majority of our former recording, leaving us to ask... Scooby Dooby Doo episode, where are you? <laughs> yeah. Scooby Dooby Doo, where's the last hour of that audio? <laughs> <laughs> um, have we tried unmasking everybody in our lives? <laughs> <laughs> I tried, but it just made the waveform worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm out then. Is that a trap, maybe? <laughs> right. Maybe it'll wander into the trap. I just uh, hope you all know I, I resisted the temptation to introduce myself as Dommy Do. I have no idea what that even would have been. <laughs> I, I think the obvious one is Scooby Dom. Oh, Scooby Dooby Dom. <sighs> Amato with the big ideas again. I know. That's why I'm in charge ish. <laughs> Idea man. Mm-hmm. That's your superhero name. <laughs> idea man geez just like noun man that is just the worst kind of superhero name for like people to come up with it's like when someone's trying to come up with a new pokemon but they don't really get pokemon and they have like a digimon and they're like this is you know light bulb mon and you're like that's not how pokemon works i think you should just go with your uh transformers name what's my transformers name uh fix saver (laughs) Oh yeah, Fix Saver. I, I like Fix Saver. Yeah. Uh, probably turn into a floppy disk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's what you said before. Oh, great. <laughs> I, I'm exactly as clever now as I was back in the Transformers episode. Perfect. Now, now we know. <laughs> that's usually how I find myself as well. Uh, when I re-listen to our episodes, I'm like, when you guys are talking, I'm like, oh, I should have said that. And then I hear myself say it. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, speaking of having said things and then hearing ourselves say it again, we are recording this episode again, mostly because I liked this fanfic and I kind of, you know, it was a shame not to talk about it. Totally. But but before we talk about this fanfic for today, which is titled Scooby-Dooby-Doo, Where Are You? We should talk about Scooby-Doo and us. I'll go first. <laughs> okay. So basically, I cared very very little about scooby-doo i watched like a couple episodes of um mystery incorporated back when it was coming out because it's a good show that i should probably watch more than a couple episodes of Mm -hmm. um but then for about i don't know a period of five months ish my oldest kid was really into scooby-doo and like you know watched a couple of the movies on netflix or streaming services one of the lego movies lego scooby-doo you know it's a thing now Mm-hmm. Um, we got a few I- issues of like the Scooby-Doo magazine, you know, subscri- subscribed, he'd check out books from the library. And so I was like, oh yeah, Scooby-Doo, that is totally a thing. And shockingly, <laughs> it's still a thing. And I, I still can't quite wrap my mind over the fact that like new Scooby-Doo content is being produced like, you know, at a fairly consistent rate in the year of our Lord 2020. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
Um, in any case, it made me really want to find a Scooby-Doo fanfic. And so I did. And I made you two read it. <laughs> What's your background? Yeah, they're still making stuff, aren't they? They had that uh, new movie back in May. Yeah. It's supposed to be really bad. <laughs> I mean, the, the Probably CGI did not have good. enough Linda Cardellini in it. I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. I'm, I'm not sure who's doing the voice now. <laughs> I also did not check whether Linda Cardellini is in the new Scooby-Doo movie because I do not care. But <laughs> just saying. Right. Do you two have any Scooby-Doo feels or opinions whatsoever? I watch Scooby-Doo occasionally. Um, I had a antenna TV growing up, but my grandparents lived nearby and they had cable. And so sometimes I'd go up to their place and watch the TV in the bathroom <laughs> mm -hmm. a, on a cartoon network. And I'd catch old reruns of uh, Scooby-Doo. So I've seen a few here and there. Mm -hmm. uh, including some with like the with the little annoying one <laughs> scrappy I'm, pr I'm pretty sure i've seen that although I, I think the part of my brain has just got just erased it to protect myself <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i feel like i must have seen some scrappy who content but i also don't remember it really firmly i think it just absorbed yeah. the general pop culture's hatred for scrappy do but <laughs> yeah um it's warranted but, but tori is going to stand up for scrappy do here right you did last time yeah well i was gonna say i, I did like scrappy when i was a kid because he's a puppy and he was kind of cute he was like i'm gonna fight everybody hold me back <laughs> it, it was a little bit adorable um i get why people don't like him it's kind of a gimmick and I just, I can't hold any hatred in my heart for, a, like, a funny little puppy, to be honest. I guess it's kind of unfair to hate, you know, Scrappy-Doo for being a tired gimmick, because all of Scooby-Doo is kind of a tired gimmick. Like, mm -hmm. you, it's, it's very, um, it's got a form, right? Sure. It's got a formula, <laughs> you might say. Yes. Hmm. None of us cared too deeply about Scooby-Doo, I suppose, going into it. Yeah, yeah. My, my heart heart is dead enough where I, I can hate uh, Scrappy-Doo just fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I watched a lot of Scooby-Doo as a kid, but, like, as a grown-up, it's, like, it's been decades. Like, what do I even remember about that shit other than it was pretty formulaic? Do you remember all the drugs they did? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. They were constantly <laughs> getting high. Well, I think maybe this fanfic author remembers it better than you do. Or possibly worse. Um, let's go into the story. It once again is titled Scooby Dooby Doo, Where Are You? Which is like titling your. Uh, it's like titling your Dragon Ball Z fanfic. Dragon, Dragon Ball Z, Balls. Where are you? Dragon. <laughs> Sorry. Or, or the Dragon Ball or something. <laughs> the Dragon yeah. Ball, right. I can't get behind that title. But whatever, I'll, I'll give it a pass. The author is named Yorick Jones, and this story was published on fanfiction.net back in 2005. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge only there, but I could be wrong. So, you know, right up against the edge of officially being retro in my arbitrary standards. But it was the best Scooby-Doo fanfic that I could find. And it, it's got a good hook that when I glanced at it made me want to keep reading it. I was kind of surprised it was actually published so late, dealing with how familiar the author is with, like, the time period it wrote about. 
Yeah. yeah. So this is a story in the form of memoirs by Velma Dinkley. It's an and AU. We get that premise like immediately. Yeah. What were you saying, Dom? It, it's in an AU. Yes, it's in an AU, but it's, you know, it's if anything more realistic than original Scooby-Doo. I mean, obviously, because like no talking dogs in this AU. Which is definitely an alternative universe to the show. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It, it's just like, it's historical <laughs> fiction is what this story is. It's yeah. set very firmly it, like I said, Velma's writing it in probably the modern day-ish. And it's because she's a successful author and she's been hired to write a series of short articles about, you know, her her past or like from her, her life or whatever. And she's getting paid enough that she's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Why not? <laughs> but it centers very, very heavily. She's writing about her experiences in the late 60s, you know, late 1960s, because... um. That's kind of when the Scooby-Doo aesthetic comes from, right? Yeah. It's like, it, it came out in what, is 1969 or something? Like, really late 60s. Or like 70? But it's like, clearly these kids are, they're cruising around in a hippie van, and, you know, Shaggy is very clearly a hippie. And yeah. It, Tori, you were commenting in our Lost recording that, like, all of them are sort of like, young a young person stereotypes from that era absolutely i mean this was very like late 60s early 70s like shaggy's the stoner um fred's the like boat shoe wearing uh preppy you know um velma's basically just a nerd i think and daphne <laughs> is a mod girl mm-hmm. so it's a very much the aesthetic of the time I know nothing about mod fashion, but if you tell me they looked like Daphne, then like, okay, now I get it. Yeah, mod well, wasn't interested in that until it became retro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure it probably became fashionable again and then, you know, out of fashion again multiple times. That's of course. how fashion works to my knowledge. <laughs> and so we get our first kind of setup is that like Velma shows up at college and in Rhode Island uh, what's the name of the college they go to? Providence College. Guess that makes sense. Is that a real place? College? Yeah, I, I think that's a place that people pay money to go to for some reason. <laughs> I did. Uh, <laughs> Me too. I'm at, I'm at Providence College specifically, though. Yeah, <laughs> apparently, it, yeah, it is. It's a private Catholic university in Rhode Island? Okay, well. You know, I got my master's degree from a Catholic university. It just was not very Catholic. They'll take anyone's money. I do think that's generally how universities work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and anyway, the deal is that she's coming from a small town and like, you know, she's kind of like uptight, not uptight, but like she's there to like get the college experience and like be, um, lose herself in cool classes and learn to write because she's an aspiring writer. Mm-hmm. But she meets this series of characters first shaggy who she literally bumps into when she first gets there and then daphne who turns out it turns out is her roommate and then fred who daphne starts dating in fairly short order and this seems like a good time to kind of talk about how they're basically presented in this story as opposed to you know any scooby-doo episode you might have seen i guess more archetypal in that sense then in in scooby-doo it's like you kind of wonder how this cast of characters came together yeah in for this, sure you know there's an explanation it's like uh daphne's introduced by calling 
a bunch of sororities. Like, she doesn't even say hi to Velma. She's just, like, she's busy calling all the sororities to try to pledge to them at the time that Velma comes in the room. And then they bond because Velma's, like, she says something snarky about it, and Daphne laughs, and then they become friends. It, mm-hmm. it explains how they're all thrown together, basically. Daphne's presented as, like, being a really, like, straight-A student, like, quote, you know, doing everything right kind of thing in her life, like, as it's sort of laid out for her. But also, she's, like, self-aware enough that she can laugh about it, and she's self-aware enough that she begins to question it, like, once she kind of gets to poke around and, like, imagine the things she could be doing. Right, like, the story as a whole kind of reads not so much like Scooby-Doo, but more like you know, a college experience for someone during the Vietnam War, like these people who become radicalized and travel uh, over the, the country to protest and live in radical communities. It's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. And then Shaggy is kind of put at odds with his cartoon persona. Um, and very specifically, and the author is very aware of that, in that he is in the in the cartoon, he'd be like hungry and nervous, right? Mm-hmm. Is kind of his things going on. Mm-hmm. And in this, he is very chill. He's like friendly, but very, very chill. Like he's, you know, conflict averse, but in the sense that like he's not going to get any conflict, not in that he's going to like flee from it, you know. Um, and... And his thing is less eating food and more doing drugs as the course of things, you know, continues in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting extrapolation of the character. Um, and the author, like, or like Velma as the narrator comes to identify this later on that, like, when she talks about Shaggy and her own rewriting of the story that happens later, she makes him more fearful. Though it's not really explained why, but... It's nice yeah, because just cause she thought it would be funny, I guess. Yeah, but it it's it's a good idea. Like it's every what everyone thought, you know, that Shaggy was just smoking a lot of weed. Yeah, the, the, like, the hunger you know, is definitely code, right, for right. like having the munchies, unquote, and the dopey behavior, you know, and the the rag raggedy looks like he's a stoner archetype. Mm-hmm. And then Fred. It's interesting in this story, you get the least from Fred. He's, but that's kind of because it's Velma writing it and Velma ends up least close to Fred as the course of things, you know, as the story continues. Yeah. Um, and he feels kind of the least interesting as a result, I feel like. Well, I don't know. He's like, he's a guy. Yeah. Initially, <laughs> he does feel very uninteresting. But I also feel like that's kind of how he was in Scooby-Doo. It's like, what was, like, not that any of them had a lot of distinct characteristics, but, like, I feel like Fred might be the least distinct in the initials. Like, he's just a guy, right? In Mystery Incorporated, they make him obsessed with traps. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Like, setting them. I've heard a lot of good things about about Mystery Incorporated. (laughs) I don't think that's all that's going on with his character, but, like... No. It makes it charming for him to be this, like, kind of, you know, I don't know, trap nerd. I don't know. It's probably not a yeah. thing in the real world. <laughs> it probably is a thing in the real world, come to think of it. We've played D&D. We've probably met that person. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, 
And so, and the people come together because Velma and Fred are dating and they like start dating like real seriously, like committed, like they, they attach themselves at the hip once they get together. And again, that, no, not Velma and Fred, jeez, that would be weird. <laughs> Daphne and Fred. And then Velma's Daphne's roommate, and amusingly, Shaggy is Fred's sorority brother, because, like, they, they got him in the sorority because he's their drug hookup. And, like, it seems like a, a cute real-world detail. And I've got to say, one thing this story is good about is having lots of little verisimilitude-inducing details. Mm-hmm. Both about the characters and about the time period. Yeah. I would say that the way they all got together was contrived, except that it's, like I said before, it's such a better explanation than the <laughs> than no explanation than the non-explanation we get initially. And of course, that's not the author's goal. The goal is to go somewhere completely different than how they all met up. So they definitely give us enough. And also with the style being like a memoir, it's it uh, kind of uh, builds around the idea that there's, that there's uh, spaces in the, in the description, things happen off screen. And yada, 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 that they hook up and they're friends. Yeah. Right. And the author also kind of lets there be a little bit of buildup in that the first time they're together as a group, it's because because Daphne and Fred are trying to set up Shaggy and Velma and kind of have them come along on a double date. And, you know, they get along fine, but it's not like there's any chemistry. Um, But that kind of does introduce the four of them as four people who go out and do something together. After that, they sort of, well, we'll skip over a lot of little details and, you know, go back to any that we want to talk about later. Um, they start attending protests and stuff. It seems like Daphne is sort of like the main driving force here. And then, you know, Fred is her significant other. And, you know, uh, Daphne, not Velma, Daphne. Jeez, I don't know what's wrong with me today. I did not do this last time. Feels like Daphne is kind of like the, the spearhead here of like social activism. To be completely honest, if I'm not looking at the characters, I can confuse any four of their names for the other. <laughs> yeah. Could you look at Fred and say, no, not even look at him, but could you imagine Fred and say, yes, that guy's name is Shaggy? Mm, n- <laughs> no. Or no. Scooby. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I can see him as a Scooby. <laughs> I can see him as a Scooby, too. I yeah. agree. Anyone can be a Scooby. He's just the opposite of being Shaggy, is all. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That That's is fair. <laughs> yeah, but they do. Yeah, they, they get to this point where they're they're all, you know, getting radicalized. But there's a little buildup before that. There's mm-hmm. um, Daphne introducing Shaggy to Velma by setting them up on a date. Right. And we get a little revelation about Velma's past that she was never, she's never been on a date, I guess, was basically it. She's never really, like, kissed anyone. She does kiss Shaggy. Yeah, but it's interesting, the framing. There's this thing being built up that, like, you know, Velma at this time in her life is not sure what's going on, but she's fairly obsessed with Daphne. And, you know, when she kisses Shaggy... What she's thinking in her mind is like, oh, so you, like Daphne, you have like a, a hot boyfriend. Well, I, I can make out with someone too. take that Daphne Blake. And, you know, she yeah. kisses Shaggy with that going through her mind in, you know, less words. I'm expanding it. Also, like, yeah. I think that was I, I don't recall correctly, but wasn't she like smoking weed or something for the first time at that point? It's around that time. Yeah, or something. 
Oh, um, and she has this. I think she has the same the same thing in mind. Is like take that, Daphne. I'm not a total square. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's a little bit a pot. A little bit later when they first started going to marches, but it was, it was the same idea. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But yeah. Like I'm saying, those are the things that build up to that. Is that their relationships are developing, and uh, yeah, that's basically so. And when you talk about like them being radicalized during this time too, like when they're attending protests, like Shaggy gets his skull cracked by mm-hmm. a police officer, right? Yeah. And like that's the kind of thing you know that happens sometimes, and that might kind of solidify some of your opinions towards uh, the adult society. Um, and then leading up into kind of the more or less Scooby-Doo cast driving around in a van that we know, there's a few other things like, you know, Shaggy and Fred get high and paint the van. Yeah. And Shaggy gets kind of like, starts just kind of like mentioning, oh, like California is super cool. Like all this stuff going on in San Francisco or whatever. Yeah. There's a, yeah. Have a few whimsical moments where they talk about San Francisco. That's where everything's really going on. Mm-hmm. And this is also, yeah. After like a strong build towards everybody, um, like kind of smoking weed together and hanging out together and going to protests together for a while. It's like they've all become part of this group. Even Velma, who was, you know, very reserved at first. Because we didn't I've, really mention, but they started off as a, as a like small town naive person who's uh-huh. been slowly opening up. Yeah, Velma, for yeah. sure. Uh, their father was like the town sheriff. Excuse me. Their father was the town sheriff. And like, we're going to get a kind of flashback to their childhood that sort of shows the sort of normal white oppression by like you know her parents that she got we'll get to that in a moment yeah that's Um, actually my favorite part we'll let you talk about in a moment because it happens right after what is supposed to be a big turning point which is Uh that they're driving around it's it's like a rainstorm and they find a big dog Uh they find a talks to them (laughs) no they they find a um juvenile uh great dane yeah probably about four months old based on the weight yeah they, okay so like i guess six, not the biggest of dogs no it's they, like uh, six, 60 something pounds at the time but as a great dane that would be about four months old so they look for our, our collar and they don't find anything they, they start knocking on doors in the, in the neighborhood uh nobody recognizes the dog or know know who where the dog's from they uh expand their s- search radius a little bit I'll keep knocking on doors, expand it a little bit, expand it a little bit until eventually they just realize they've like driven out of Rhode Island, which I guess is pretty mm-hmm. easy to do probably considering the size. <laughs> but at some point they just decide to keep driving. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a cute little scene about how Scooby-Doo gets his name, which is like from Shaggy kind of lying drowsy with him and, Oh, no, I, I guess Velma's the one who sings a snatch of the uh, whatever song this is from. It's like a Frank Sinatra song, right? Well, like they were both yeah. Shaggy and the dog were both like asleep in each other's arms or something. <laughs> oh, that's right. And Velma sings Strangers in the Night, Scooby Dooby Doo. Yeah. I don't know that song. In the night. And then the line is <laughs> <laughs> The Great Dane lifted its head as if in answer and fixed me briefly with its blank, moist eyes before settling back onto Shaggy's chest. From out of nowhere, Shaggy muttered, he heard his name. And they name him Scooby. <laughs> Do. 
That's a good description of Great Dane Eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's the turning point in their kind of like uh, counterculture experience. Um, is that when they kind of just take off all together in a van and they, they're, you know, they're ditching college, like they're leaving that behind them. They're failing their class. They're dropping out of college. They're just like driving west or mostly yeah. west. At this point, they've been kind of dropped out of college anyways. They've stopped going to classes altogether for a while. Yeah, but more officially, I guess. Yeah, leaving the state is pretty big. <laughs> yeah. And then we get that really interesting flashback chapter, which is the only time that Velma, the writer goes back deeper into her past in this series of memoirs. Mm -hmm. And Tori, lead the way telling us what happens in it, because it's a really good chapter. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's what really made me like this fanfic. Like, basically, Velma, you know, that chapter ends with um, the cackle, like, oh, they started laughing, the cackle of the fatigue we kept driving. The next chapter starts, it's called Set It Free. And then it's all Velma's reflection. And what happens is she, you know, she talks. We said her father was the sheriff of a small town. Um, she talks about getting caught playing doctor with another little girl when she was very young. And how her parents, like, chastised her and scolded her. Um, I wish I could, I'm trying to look at it and, like, remember it a little bit better. But, well, there's that really good line. Yeah. Um, we didn't know there was anything wrong with it, but from the look on our uh -huh. parents' faces as they jerked our little flowery dresses back on with hard, frantic tugs, it was made abundantly clear that we were the worst little girls in the world. No yes. words. None were necessary. That was the line I was looking for. I know I read it our first take through. Um, it's, a, it's such a good line. Hits you in and the feels. <laughs> oh, and it, it keeps going. You want to finish that paragraph? It's like the second paragraph in that chapter, where once I believed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. No words, none were necessary. Where once I believed it to be celebrating my eighth birthday at the Winter Fantasy Ice Rink, it was now for sure I'd be blowing out my candles in hell. <laughs> so good. I don't think I cried, but I know I blushed hot and red, not only embarrassed, but angry at not knowing what I had to be embarrassed about. It was the start of a shame that took years to vanquish probably the best paragraph in this fanfic and it's so real right it's yeah. so real it's what i don't know it moved me so much it's what made me really enchanted with the story and then of course after that she decides to run away from home right as an eight-year-old right <laughs> and i loved this too because she's like she's running away from home because she's so ashamed not knowing what she has to be ashamed about, but knowing, you know, this, like, deep sense of wrong. It's taken her a lifetime to overcome. So relatable. Um, and then there's this other amazing part where she's kind of fantasizing, and this is, like, kind of where her creativity comes in. She's, like, she's running away, and she's, like, you could say I was a bit proud of my criminal genius as I slipped easily from my window to the friendly waiting branches of an oak beside her house. My plan was, like, clockwork. Next stop, Canada, where under my new name of Ramona Eloise de Tarnian, exotic and mysterious, Nipa, I would instantly fall in with the wrong kind of folks, the rough crowd. All the thieves, cutthroats, and thugs would accept me as one of their own, and in time, Sheriff Martin Dinkley's only little girl would be recognized as their natural leader, the Moriarty of Montreal. 
I would even send maddening clues of my nefarious plots back to Plum to the Plum City to police department and watch them scramble. Someone snatched all the gold in Fort Knox. They've yanked the crown jewels right out from under the Queen's snoot. Some fiend has kidnapped Peggy Lee and is demanding a trillion dollars ransom. Who? Why, Ramona, the devil, Detarnian, of course, arch supervillain, who can sleep late every day and play doctor with anyone she pleases. So good. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end play doctor with anyone she pleases thing that really yes. is the sells that sequence. Such a kid thing to want. <laughs> I know. She fantasizes she's just like a Moriarty style villain who can play doctor with anyone she pleases. Right. <laughs> I love it. And the sequence goes on like, um, you know, her dad ends up like kind of locking her in jail temporarily just kind of to show <laughs> that he cares what happens to her in her life, I guess. Yeah, that's a normal thing to do, sure. <laughs> right. She... She says, like, these days, you'd probably call it child abuse, but, like, I, I more or less got the intent behind what he was, you know, trying to convey, and, you know, then he came and hugged me and all that kind of stuff. And so it's not like the, the parents are villainized exactly either. It's just they're, you know, passing along some certain concepts and shames in their, in their parenting there. Um, and then we... Then we jump back into the present and kind of st- not not present like the 1960s, but like the the main time frame and sort of stay there for the rest of the story, more or less. Mm-hmm. And in summary, they're kind of cruising around, you know, the country, mm-hmm. seeing America, finding America, if you will, um, on their way <laughs> west towards California. I mean, I haven't seen America. Have you? The- I saw some of it, but I don't think it's missing, though. <laughs> I think we have a pretty good idea well, where it is. On the I, contrary, it is probably too much space. I was going to say there's a lot more America than most people think there is. So. Yeah. <laughs> and here's where, you know, you as a reader, you're like reading a Scooby-Doo fanfic. And at this point, they are in a van. They are driving across the country. And you are thinking, so is this when they solve a mystery? (laughs) Or rewrite history? (laughs) To be fair, though, I think at this point I was like, Scooby-Doo hasn't talked yet. I think this is going somewhere else. (laughs) Well, I wasn't expecting Scooby-Doo to talk, but I was kind of expecting there to be a mystery that they solve. No, you're right. I think I was in that similar spot, but I was on the edge. I was like, this definitely seems like it's going somewhere else. (laughs) I was kind of dreading the turn because like the tone of the the, uh, fanfic in the fake memoirs thing was very like, it it did a good job of talking like someone's memories and really grounded in reality. And I wasn't really uh, looking forward to a shoehorned in mystery element because that's where the show was, but they ended up incorporating it in, into the story in a different way. Yeah. What happens is one time when they're hanging out in a diner and creative writing major or former creative writing major aspiring, you know, writer Velma sees just like some other patron in the place who has like a really interesting face. Like he's a character actor sort of face um, where she's like, Oh man, that guy would just make a great villain. And she starts making up a story and just telling it to her friends there, like just on the spot, 
in which like there is a mystery it's like oh he's the guy who owns the abandoned um, yeah she, she turns to them and goes you know who that is that's old man jenkins he owns the abandoned amusement park down the way <laughs> mm-hmm. hey yeah shaggy bobbed along with it while fred quiz how do you know you've never been here before daphne just rolled her eyes at her boyfriend's thickness <laughs> so they introduced the uh concept of scooby-doo into the story as basically just that just like a, a little later that they end up telling the stories over again over campfire so they're just campfire stories mm-hmm. yeah they you know they start hooking up with like caravans of other people traveling and velma ends up kind of telling these stories you know always on the spot she's not writing them beforehand she's not writing them down she's just improving them every time yeah. Um, but just like she starts telling them to like an audience of whoever else is around also as they're traveling. Yeah. The counterculture and, peeps. And to jump ahead just a little bit, I mm-hmm. expected that this would turn into some sort of commercial success for, for the character that like, oh, this I is too. Like, like they, they wrote down the stories made a collection of books and this is how they got famous, but they end up doing that in a different way uh, later on. So this was just something they did at the moment and I'm just talking about it now in the memoirs. Yeah. It's it's good because that would have felt very pat. Would you know been. from the start that Velma's a successful author. Mm. And you know now that like people are well are receiving these Scooby Doo stories that she's coming up with. Um and so you expect that like, oh she's going to publish them and that doesn't happen. And I'm very glad. <laughs> what what I do like about it that's so that's like so clever in terms of Scooby-Doo mythos is that like people will, while they're listening, throw things at her that they want her to incorporate into the story. And so they're like, put, have Batman show up. And she'll be like, fine, Batman shows up. And like, this is what happens. <laughs> or like three stooges. And she's like, okay, the three stooges are being incorporated into this story. Now the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> right. And the reason it's so brilliant is because Scooby-Doo has always had such a history of these random ass crossover guest appearances. <laughs> like, uh, you know, yeah. characters, all those characters have shown up in Scooby-Doo at one time or another and like helped pull someone's mask off, whatever. And so, it just kind of like it jives so well with the kind of kitchen sink pop culture feel of the Scooby-Doo franchise in general for for Velma to be doing that in her storytelling. And I was just very tickled by it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Red is trying to knock everything I'm recording with over right now. And I don't know why. Probably she wants a Scooby snack. Yeah, apparently. Uh, so sorry. Uh, red. Huh. A red snack. <laughs> that sounds like a different thing. <laughs> sounds less appetizing. Yeah. It sounds like something uh, that uh, McCarthy would be afraid of. Uh, well, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Don, because there's a couple spikes on here because she like punched the the recording equipment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That'll be fine. You weren't talking anyway, so I'll just mute everything. Yeah, from that file. So what you're saying is that Red is not Scooby Doo. Red is Scrappy Doo. Apparently, she's been so nutty today. So I'm just gonna see if I can calm her down before we keep going because I don't want her to keep doing this. What are you doing? But then, in their road trip journey, we kind of reach the—I guess it's the climax of the story. The like, um, I mean, the, the last—the last part of the story kind of has its own thing going on, which we'll get to. But this feels like the climax, which is that Fred 
calls home just to check in, say like, "Hey, I'm alive. We're you know going going over on the. We're, I don't know. We're in a van. Forget it." But anyway, he finds out the news that a childhood friend of his died in Vietnam, and this is a friend who, like, when they were little kids, they had like said, "Oh yeah, we'll go to the army together, and you know, have each other's back, and do surely good, glorious warrior things or whatever." Yeah. And that guy, Jimmy, is now dead. At this point in their journey, they're in Death Valley within spitting distance of San Francisco, apparently. I'd forgotten that detail, but that makes sense thematically. That was their goal, was to get to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, it appears that Fred has been drafted. A month ago was his 20th birthday, and like he hasn't burned his draft card or anything. He's got it. Seems mm-hmm. like he's in for Vietnam. Yeah, Shaggy said something about getting a draft card and just burning it a long time ago. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's Shaggy, so Shred's got his own thing going on. Yeah, I, I like the line where um, specifically, doesn't Shaggy say, like, he burned his draft card and Fred is like, no, you didn't. You just, you know, forgot to burn it and lost it. Mm. And Shaggy says, yeah, well, I would have burned it. So, yeah. you know, same principle, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Fred is having a a moment of doubt in what he's doing with his life. And specifically, he's kind of inclined to go to Vietnam just to, like, prove he's not a coward. He's not just trying to, like, escape Vietnam by, like, doing all the counterculture stuff here and, like, you know... Um, Smoking grass for peace is what he says, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Fred has been going along with things, but they haven't necessarily been a, a true believer. And this is the first time their um, faith, I guess you can call it, has been shaken. Yeah, totally. And, and it's like, it, that's his background, right? Like, mm-hmm. not only his friend, but what he was expected to do. So I totally understand his perspective in this. Yeah, it's coming from a very real place. And... But every no one else is on board with this. Like, um, there's kind of a a sequence here that I like from like Fred, Fred, kind of how things are going in his mind and like how he's sort of projecting his thoughts on other people. Um, Daphne's eyes had gone wide with disbelief. Why? Because of some thick-headed guilt over the death of your friend? No, because I'm not entirely certain that this whole tune in, turn on, drop out thing is really coming from some moral outrage. Or if it's just a more romantic form of cowardice. You know I don't want to kill anybody. And I sure as hell don't want to die. But I don't like the feeling that I'm just running away. He turned to Shaggy. If you were honest with yourself, Shaggy, you'd realize you've got the same doubts. Then you don't know shit, man, Shaggy said as he stood, his expression a mix of frustration and sadness that I'd never seen grace his features before. He pointed one grease-stained finger at Fred's draft card. That thing is a solid bummer and it'll make you as dead as Jimmy. And he stalks off. And uh, Daphne and Fred spend the night like shouting at each other and that sort of yeah. thing. It's it's a conflict because Daphne is is a true believer. Yeah, and what you were saying this about Shaggy. It's an important moment for Shaggy because he hasn't been like the one with like a serious emotional, you know, stance or core up until now. No, nobody has really taken him seriously. They think he's nice and all, but like a little out of it. Does too many drugs, etc. Um, you know, and even up to that point where Fred's talking about him losing his draft card, you know, it's like he's not being taken seriously. But this was a very serious moment for him. Yeah. 
Uh, it showed that, you know, he, he was a serious person. This is actually very important to him. And that's sort of his moment here. It's an important moment for all four of them. And the way it becomes very important for Velma is that, you know, that night after after their like interminable shouting match argument, Daphne comes into what is it her her tent? They have tents set up. Yeah, tents set up in Death Valley, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting scene. Um, she starts. Daphne starts crying. You know, she's in an emotional place. She kind of expresses how jealous she is over Velma's writing talent because Velma's sitting down just like writing down some of her stories and that sort of thing. And um, complains, you know, about Fred's dumb masculinity complex and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And then in the conversation, um, she's saying like, oh, I'm such a jerk. That's why he wants to go off and die in freaking Vietnam. Hey, I interjected. Cut yourself some slack. You're smart, beautiful, funny, and you really care about the world around you. Fred got lucky and he knows it. She laughed, but it was a shy little laugh. It was her turn to be flattered. She pulled back from me and was now peering into my eyes, summing me up or taking me in. It was, ridiculously, a scary moment for me. I think you love me a little too, don't you, Vel? And it's been, you know, heavily implied, but, like, it's not like Velma was really clear that, like, she's into girls, and specifically into Daphne. And, like, that's kind of what's been going on with her in her college experience, as well as the, the whole counterculture angle. It hasn't been uh, codified just yet, and then until this moment. Uh-huh. Right. And it's a really sweet scene here where Daphne kind of um, asks to have sex with Velma because she wants to spend the night, as she says it, with somebody who loves her and, like, hasn't let her down. And, like, she you know, needs that kind of, she needs that care and that physical and, you know, emotional connection with someone who is not her machismo-ridden jerk boyfriend who she's having a fight with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, it, and it's kind of like a really sweet scene. Like, the consent is there, the caring's there, and there's kind of like some really good writing about it by you know much future Velma who is writing this this as a memoir right Mm -hmm. I like this line here I have had many lovers since many of whom I have felt for much more intensely than ever I did Miss Daphne Blake but I've never experienced a night as romantic as that desert night with its new tastes and textures and the reason I like it so much is just that it's it's easy for you writing a story to kind of make something like this a more important moment in the life of someone than, you know, it might be. Right. And like, so she's saying like, oh, it was important because of this, because it was like a new opening of like me realizing, you know, who I am and like having this first experience. But it also wasn't like the most significant relationship of my life, you know? Yeah. In in like decades and decades and decades. I I like that a lot about Velma's tone as a narrator and all this, because she's supposed to be so much older decades older and now she's trying to reflect back on you know very youthful experiences and still give them meaning and context and they do have meaning but they don't yeah 
they never seem to overshadow the fact that she has lived a whole life since then either. Exactly. And I feel like that's a really kind of deft thing that the author did with this story in that memoir form. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the other context of, if this is a memoir, but it's a fictional memoir. It's like in a real memoir, we're not going to pick on experiences that don't mean something to us in some way. But as a fictional memoir about Scooby-Doo, the author had to pick moments that would also mean something to an audience that appreciated these characters. You know what I mean? So, like, they do a good job constructing the memoir narrative in a way that their audience would appreciate, as well as making Velma feel like herself, but also this real defined character they've created. I appreciate that you reminded us that we are reading a story about Scooby-Doo because I'd kind of forgotten <laughs> at that point. Honestly, I forgot about it through pretty much the entire thing. It, it to me, just read as a story, um, kind of yeah. separate from yeah. fan fiction. It kind of is. I mean, I was kind of where Amato is for a while, or what Amato was saying, I mean, for a while, where it was like, when is the, the mystery going to happen? And then when I realized <laughs> that it wasn't, I was like, okay, I'm just going to take this in the direction it goes. And it does go somewhere new, but I don't think it fully takes us away from who those characters kind of were in their archetype in Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Like, it, mm-hmm. it is very, very different, but not so different that I would create a criticism around that. You know what I mean? It's different, but it feels um, explained, earned even, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. The author did it definitely some builds its own. Yeah, the, it builds its own world and its own, like, reason for being the way this story is that just hangs together so well that you can't really complain about any, you know, any content that is or isn't there from Scooby-Doo, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also like this moment between Daphne and Velma because it was more about Velma's character revelation of being gay, but also just, you know, she's like a virgin too, coming into her sexuality and like almost becoming an adult in that sense, but not having it be like, oh, she was my first love in a forever romance mm-hmm. or anything like that. She was just like, I accept this for what it is. And and yeah. that's cool. Yeah, and that uh, <laughs> encounter doesn't really turn into anything in the immediate either. And they're, no, it they're still it, friends, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I also just like this line afterwards where, like, Fred tears up his draft card and, like, kind of, you know, comes and shows it to Daphne. He's like, yeah, okay, I, I, I won't go to Vietnam. And, like, that's, you know, him, him kind of uh getting back together with her right he's like giving in on this fight right and then uh, and, and oh sorry velma can't velma can't help but hide it like she's a little bit disappointed in this moment by that happening and daphne says oh han be who you are and people will love you they won't be able to help themselves believe me a sweet sentiment that has however been proven wrong on more than one occasion but i took it to heart as good advice and good policy <laughs> yeah so yeah it, yeah i just like that line yeah but I, also i was thinking the same thing that they uh, <laughs> that's proven not true but it's nice policy I, I was thinking that before they they wrote that before i read that yeah <laughs> you know what's yeah, funny sure. is when i read that i was like it's great that she could think that way considering, you know, she just had sex with the person she's been pining after, like her first sexual relationship. And I'm like, you know, that might not be how she thought about it at the time. This is being constructed as a memoir narrative. Mm -hmm. So I like that it was kind of like a little bit uh, coy 
it was like mm, she might have felt a little more upset about that at the time but she's not giving <laughs> that away in the narrative you know not not what the story was about specifically right well speaking about what the story was about up until now we've kind of described i guess a story arc and character arcs more or less you know they feel kind of organic memoiry character arcs but like stuff is happening right mm-hmm. but then in this last part of the story it feels like falling action at first because it starts speeding up like it in terms of like how much time is being covered in in velma's memoirs right right and they get to san francisco they settle down there and you know they you know some of them end up with jobs temporarily or not or like you know various things happen but it also introduces what is essentially a new conflict and kind of brings it into the end of the story (laughs) yeah which is perhaps surprising yeah yes it's not very much explored but probably that can be reflected in the fact that they weren't that involved with it when it was happening right and so they kind of, you know, find a, um, you know, a shared house that they're they're living in. Not just the four of them, obviously, like you know, other other people as well, and set themselves up. And I've just got a comment here that the author's very good at the like late '60s references in terms in in two ways, both in terms of like making all these references to things that were a thing at the time, but also in terms of like <laughs> the author kind of makes a point. Velma says, like, oh, people ask if we were involved in, like, such and such an event or whatever. And it's like, no, we were way too late for that. We yeah. didn't do any of that. Oh, yeah, like Shaggy, I like that part. She was like, Shaggy went to Woodstock, but, like, none of the rest of us did. Um, and it's just, like, they were there. It feels like he's making a point that they were there at that time, but that doesn't mean they were, like, doing everything. Yeah. They, were, just, they had their lives that interacted more or less with, like, these kinds of things that in retrospect would be kind of historical whatever it's i feel like it's well done yeah they, well they mentioned that there are protests they went to there were gatherings and organized events they went to but they wouldn't necessarily be the ones that stood out in our historical context because there were so many right mm-hmm. like i appreciate that because it's like there are plenty of people who were there at the time who didn't go to everything they didn't go to the thing that mattered most because they didn't know it would be the thing that mattered the most <laughs> right they still if went they to knew plenty the thing of it. that mattered most, they would have gone to it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they were real people and they participated in action that did matter. Right. What's interesting about recording this a second time is that um, we recorded the, the first one in, like, early May, I think. Mm-hmm. And since then, some shit's happened. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm, true. I can't true help that. but reflect and wonder, are, are we going to get the same questions, you know? Yeah. Like, like, I mean, my my answer is going to be like, yeah, geez, I didn't go to any kind of protest or anything. Well, <laughs> well I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and that was kind of all I was doing. <laughs> yeah, I was quarantining I mean, at home with, fiction. Well, with my own problems, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter, I'm, I'm though. I'm very sorry, history. <laughs> I, have, I have been to so many anti-police brutality protests, but... Nothing in the last couple of weeks because my dad is I mean like an immunocompromised over sixty five group of people and I'm worried about exposing him to the virus because I still see mm-hmm. him to help out with stuff. Yeah. So that's life, you know. We're always yeah. gonna be a part of it. <laughs> but We're always it gonna f- be able to do something. It was a fun detail though that they had boring answers like that in the fanfic too. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> 
another one of those true to life things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so in summary, uh, for the characters, Daphne and Fred, they end up like getting some jobs, kind of settling in, uh, selling out to some extent or not. They get married. They like have a child or two. They, they get divorced. Like it's a whole kind of thing. And we get a description also about like how Velma's writing career gets started, which is basically that like she writes some book of like serious feminist essays for some small publishing house, but like convinces them to publish a book of fiction of hers they, at the same time. They, and they're like, sure, why not? Yeah, they, they approached her to publish uh, a collection of those essays, and she was like, only if I can also publish a, a, a fiction book that I want. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> and as we said, it's not fictionalized Scooby-Doo. It's like a mystery of her own. I, I love what but they went she... with. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. Well, I, I don't have the name in front of me, but they that French detective name that... She was going to be in Montreal. She ended up writing Ramona the Tarnian. Tarnian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, she ended up writing, that's, writing that's, up a kid detective story about about that. that yeah, that's very real too. Because I know artistic people who like have like characters they designed when they were a little kid, and they've just been like waiting their whole lives <laughs> to like work that into an actual story, and like eventually they do, and sometimes they you know get success through it. Yeah. <laughs> It also seems fitting that she achieves, you know, publishing, you know, writing success through mysteries, both because, you know, it's Scooby-Doo, mystery connection, that kind of thing. And also because mysteries are just such a huge genre. And there's like, you know, so many authors <laughs> that can become successful authors writing mysteries. But man, a uh, detective series with like a, a lesbian detective, I have to read that from the 60s. <laughs> Yeah. From I mean, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the unbelievable part about it, huh? Is that she would, but but obviously she she doesn't type pigeonhole herself to that extent. And there's actually a whole yeah. thing about how she starts writing another series that is not about a lesbian detective. And some of her like fans are kind of pissed that like she's selling out or whatever. But she's like, I just want to write another character. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's what felt a little unbelievable to me is that her fan base was apparently of her lesbian detective was apparently, like, big enough to make her famous, but when she wrote a straight man detective, everyone got pissed. It's like... uh, They they talked about their radical, or some of their fan base being upset with it, which is any fan base with anything. (laughs) Oh, sure. I mean, I agree that, yeah, some of the fan base would be upset, but yeah, like, at the time writing a lesbian detective, I don't know if that wouldn't have got her that (laughs) popular. You know? It would have been niche. yeah, they mentioned I mean, like the, it was the quality of the stories that got them into the mainstream. Right, in else. which case, oh, I guess yeah, it's some subset that got upset. Anyway, yeah, it's in, this is an interesting part because you, you, like we said, you would think the story would kind of end uh, at the end of her memoir, but it keeps going. It does. Uh, last thing about about Daphne, not about Daphne. Last thing about Velma briefly. Um, for a little while, she dates Valerie from Josie and the Pussycats, and I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. <laughs> That's cute, though. I mean, sure. I mean, Why not? it's a cute nod. Josie and the Pussycats yeah. are in this universe, too. <laughs> so, as, like, a one-hit wonder from the 60s when, like, you know, they originally were created. Or, or no, not 60s, 70s, in that case. <laughs> uh, which also feels realistic, I guess. But the main... The main drama here is with Shaggy, and Shaggy kind of gets his own 
you know, career going too. He starts roadieing for, of all bands. Was I was it? leaving that as an opening for you, Tori. <laughs> oh. I was trying to remember, that was, was it Fish? What was it? No, no. Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, Sly and the Family Stone. That's right, of course. Well, okay, it's been a while, y'all. That was, oh yeah, that was crazy though, because he had like close relationship with everybody in the band, kind of too. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I guess Velma makes comment on saying that she would think that that would be the band he gravitated towards, but you know, mm-hmm. I think Shaggy's a funky guy, so. Yeah, and she was saying it was kind of like the, the optimism and like, you know, inclusiveness that like drew him in. Cause he, he was always like an optimistic kind of guy who like wanted people to be feeling good and happy. Yeah. That it was that upbeat music that drew Shaggy in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then his life starts going up and down from drug abuse. Right. Um, and they talk about... Like he overdoses yeah, they, they, on stuff. They talk about this in broad strokes over a period of time. Yeah, we get we get like kind of an initial incident that shows everyone, hey, like this is really serious, where at Fred and Daphne's like, you know, little wedding, he, he what, pukes and has to be... Taken away in an ambulance. ODs, doesn't he? Um, yes. Sounds right, yeah. Um, and and so, but, but then after that, it's in pretty broad strokes. But I like the broad strokes, or I like how they're written here. It's like a, it's a transition out of, you know, Velma crying by Shaggy's side when he's in the hospital. And, you know, he he's awake and he tries to soothe her and also he like seems more with it and like more present there than he has on average for a long time she says hey now sister he croaked his voice a little abused by that morning's show no more of that it like gets better from here i never wanted to believe anything more in my whole life shaggy did get better then got worse then even worse then better for a while then he just vanished. And it's just kind of like that, that drug abuse or addiction story. Like it's never a smooth line. So I just also kind of really appreciated, even if it's only in like a couple lines of the story, just kind of uh, suggesting the outline of like, you know, this happened over a course of time and like there were ups and there were downs and, you know, he pulled himself together and then he kind of like, you know, had bad times as well. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there was also a strong suggestion that it was, like, kind of his affiliation with the band that kept dragging him back in. Um, yeah, it's Velma's, you know, Velma's sort of um, musing about it or theorizing about it, right? Because, like, she didn't know what was going on in his life very directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but But that is part of what she says. She's like, I don't think there were many people who were kind of, like, holding him back you know right. or moderating him at that time in his life right uh yeah there we are uh shaggy had always pushed his own boundaries and though i would never point a hypocritical finger there was most likely not a voice of moderation amongst his new family in the music scene yeah, and that's fair because you know we talk about like musicians especially at the time you know i, I think that's accurate for the experience of a lot of those folks i mean it's a tough 
place to be in if everybody, if you are an addict and everybody around you continues to use drugs, like, how are you going to stop? Yeah. It really has to, you really have to put yourself entirely away from the culture. And for him, that was his, you know, his, uh, his bread earning came from being in the culture. Yeah. So there you go. And that was kind of his people. It seems like yeah. he's as close to them as he was with his old college friends at that Absolutely. point. So yeah, it definitely seemed like the author did a good job establishing that like there kind of wasn't a way out unless he really quit the scene. And that didn't seem like an option. Mm-hmm. And then that's what sort of leads into the actual ending of the story, which is an interesting one in that in that it's sort of like a, a cap to this shaggy story that that was introduced fairly late in the game, really. Like there wasn't kind of a drug abuse plot line or like addiction plot line with him earlier on, which makes sense because like he was younger and like it was a different life circumstance and it wasn't actually an issue then, you know, or it didn't appear to be or whatever. But it kind of did. Like he was always high. Yeah, like, nobody like nobody called him out, right? And, right? and like Velma's narrative didn't call. It called attention to it, but not in a critical way. Because I guess none of them were being critical. Right. But, like, you can totally see it from the start, which I kind of like. That's liked. true. I like that it mirrored how she may have felt about it at the time, you know? Yeah, because it wasn't critical in retrospect either. Yeah. Right. Well, anyway, the deal is, um, yeah, so, so Shaggy disappears. He takes Scooby. And I know you said that distressed you, uh, Tori, because you're like, he he's clearly not necessarily in a position to be taking care of a dog and should probably be leaving the dog with someone who is going to be yeah. responsible all the time. Yeah, there is a couple things, you know, that was definitely the most distressing part for me is it's like, I understand the struggle, but I feel like, you know, you always have the presence of mind to make a decision about you know, other people, if you care, like he took Scooby with him when he said he was going on tour with, with Sly, but he wasn't, he lied and he just dipped and then nobody ever saw him again. So I just, you know, I don't feel like that was responsible. No. <laughs> and, and that's the only part of the story in which I really disliked Shaggy as a character. <laughs> but then, so here's the ending. Velma, the Velma, the writer who is writing these memoirs has been serializing them in like whatever this magazine is that's paying her. And she hasn't been commenting on this process, but like that's the form this is in. It's like a series of, you know, series of pieces that's being published. And so in her last in the series, she describes that she got a postcard from Daphne and Daphne's saying, have I got an ending for your story? And Daphne relates this story where she was in Venice. Uh, she's like a real estate agent. So driving a client through Venice, she says, and she sees a guy selling kites on the beach, just like as they're passing um, in a in their car or whatever. And she said, the guy looked just like Shaggy. She says, I swear to God, I was a stoplight away before it hit me. And I thought about turning back to know for sure, but I couldn't. I wanted it to be him so bad that I couldn't risk finding out it wasn't. Does that make sense? But if it was him, I thought you should know he was smiling. And then that's what... 
and then Velma is just given kind of this musing ending for a couple of paragraphs here, starting with, it was him. It had to be. Not just because part of me needs to know he's still out there and well. Not just because I love him in a way I've never loved another man, but because it fits. It makes sense. As long as he's alive, so is the most important part of my life. As long as he lives, so does the dream that they tried so hard to cremate one day, so long ago in the panhandle of Golden Gate Park. The Thelen's obituary was premature, and where there is no corpse, there is no mystery. Case closed. And uh, that obituary being like, what, for for the decade, for like the... um, For the 60s counterculture, I guess. Yeah. I swear that they kind of used him as a symbol for that, but... Yeah, that's what he becomes here. Yeah, um, I didn't quite get that part. I also, I'm like, where's Scooby? Well, yeah, that is a thing. Well, it would because... have been like 20, 30 years later or something. Well, I know that, but <laughs> my point being is that, like, they never resolved the arc of... I mean, I guess they didn't really care about Scooby, to be honest, in this story. Maybe yeah. my only, like, big criticism is it's like, Scooby's like a dog they find and Shaggy actually almost kills him by accidentally feeding him hash brownies for a dog. That does happen once, yes. Yeah, like basically it's a dog who's been long suffering with this group of people who can't properly take care of him. Like, that's not the story I want to see for the titular character of Scooby-Doo. But anyway. Well, right, that's what, that does bother me about it, too. Not because I actually care about Scooby-Doo, really, like, you know, the dog in this story. But it's like, um, right, the title of the story is Scooby-Dooby-Doo, Where Are You? Yeah. And so one can imagine a story where the dog Scooby has become a symbol of something to Velma, and that that kind of ties in to her ending, and then you know, the last line is her quoting the song and so on and so on and Scooby-Dooby-Doo. Yeah. But it is not Scooby who becomes some kind of symbol that represents something to her. It's Shaggy. No. Scooby and is so, just a neglected dog in this whole story. <laughs> and so, yeah, it feels kind of like, sh- and, you know, Scooby does feel almost like a symbol when he's first introduced, right? He's sort of the impetus for them to like go off on their, on their trip and or, you know, move to the West Coast. And like... That could have been carried onward, but it just kind of isn't. And so it's like, basically, it feels like Scooby doesn't really matter in the story. He's just there because there's a dog in the source material. Yes. That's, and that, that is a complaint of mine with this. Well, what were you expecting? <laughs> I mean, from a more realistic story? Um, no, mostly I was expecting a better title. Sure. <laughs> I was expecting a better treatment of dogs. Um, no, it makes total sense that the story is focused on the human drama and the human development because humans like to read about humans and write about humans and think about humans and, you know, maybe less about the life and times of a Great Dane. It's like movies about Hollywood, you know, they, they, they like wash them out themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or what I can't stand is all those plays about actors like stage actors and playwrights no, playwrights where they're like the movies are so terrible but the stage is such a noble endeavor yeah. and i had to act in like several of those in high school and i was like oh my god 
yeah. stop being so self-righteous about how much better stage acting is than movie right. acting. <laughs> self-righteous and self-hating at the same time for long, for pages and pages and pages. <laughs> Could be very smug. Yeah. Uh, what, was the, what was the one I was in? Light Up the Sky? Are you asking us? Unbearable. <laughs> I'm, asking you to tell, I'm asking you to tell me what play I was in in high school. I, I don't remember that one. I remember... Um, as You Like It. Yeah. And the no, one not the, As You Like It. It was Anything Goes. Well, I was in that one, too. Uh, yeah. I mean, I also don't like Anything Goes. That's <laughs> true. That's also the only that, play I saw you in high school. And also that one mystery <laughs> one they keep on renaming because the name is racist. <laughs> right. Uh, that's also not about the stage, but I was in another one too that had the same thing where I played a Shriner backstage. And I didn't have to get costumed. I only had to show up for rehearsals for the last week and I read my lines off a script and I still got to go to the cast party. Wonderful. <laughs> and it was Perfect. my most successful role. <laughs> Amazing. Well, anyway, if I had one plain complaint about this fanfic, it would be why name it after the dog if you're only going to treat the dog like shit? Yep. Agreed. Um, and I, I guess we've segued well into us complaining about the fanfic before we end on praise. So what other complaints uh, do we have besides the title indicating that Scooby should be important when in fact Scooby is not important? <laughs> um, I think the fact that it's a memoir lent a lot to it, but also kind of meant that they got away with some... I don't want to say weak storytelling, but not as strong, especially towards the end where they just kind of uh, did the equivalent of yada, 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 the end. Yeah. And on and on in Scooby-Dooby-Doo. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they introduced this, I was going to say scappy, that's not right, shaggy, <laughs> the shaggy yeah. thing. Maybe as an attempt to find a way to end the story, because like, I can understand wanting to tell the story of them uh, where they started from and them going to San Francisco and then getting there, but they might have hung around too long after that and had to find a way to um, find the off-ramp. Mm. Yeah. I-, I agree with you about that kind of story structure storytelling. It feels like a story, and you know, not the tightest story, but as a memoir it feels very appropriate. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like the story reaches a climax. Then it feels like it just kind of keeps going for a while and then stops. There's like something of that. And I know it's kind of, it's it's partly the sort of like, this is what happened in our lives later on. Because obviously you're going to be curious about that. Yeah. But it doesn't go into that much. I mean, it goes into simultaneously too much and not enough detail. Yeah. It, it doesn't It doesn't hang together structurally as a story all the time. I agree. I feel like it descends into the depths. Like, I don't know how y'all feel about the Fred and Daphne story, but they have a painful divorce. Fred cheats on her and everything. And I just felt like at that point, yeah, that might be someone's real story. But for it to Mm -hmm. be summarized so quickly, it kind of felt like unnecessary drama. Right. I think it might have been another symptom of the uh, off-ramp coming up. They just wanted to... yeah quickly get through it perhaps yeah Yeah. that might be the case it's definitely kind of a storytelling um i don't know it reminds me of certain movies you know like at the end of animal house where like those two got married then they divorced later because blah 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 kind of thing yeah i've never seen animal house well it's that college movie thing where they 
stop like got such and such graduated became a senator and so, okay etc they just like they give the text under the character's picture telling what happened in the next like 20 years of their life yeah that's what this felt like okay <laughs> yeah i know what you mean uh don't they do that in greece no no okay they fly off in a car I'm confusing myself was that greece too um anyway let's move on (laughs) to praise then because like i said i had us talk about this again because i like the story Mm -hmm. and so i think we have some good things to say about it we've said some of them yeah i mean you know you read one of my favorite paragraphs of the story amato i read my other favorite the writing is actually spectacular. The voice of Velma as a character is really strong. Like, yeah. I would buy this as someone's real memoir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were saying last time, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be saying that all the time, emphasize what you're missing, but it really sells itself well as memoirs being written by a confident writer who enjoys writing and has fun writing. And as that point, yeah. which is this point in their life, have zero fucks to give. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like... I mean, part of that is just saying, like, it's strong writing. So, yes, it feels like it can be by a professional writer. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just sort of that, that tone that, that we're trying to get at here. Um, someone with a voice who is not afraid to use it, who, like, already knows they're getting paid for this no matter what they write, who, like, can just write whatever they feel like writing, and so they're writing something that they're enjoying writing. Like, it's... It's it's very fun to read, yeah. and it feels kind of very. It feels like the thing that it's supposed to be. It's like very Joan Didion. I feel like I've read one Joan Didion piece in college, hmm. but that that sounds right. You were the English major, so I'll assume that's a <laughs> well, very astute comparison. <laughs> she definitely does a lot of personal writing. That's really strong in her stance as a woman with her experience. And taking that and being like, I'm going to stand tall and strong with my experience. And I I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, like, she's controversial, too, because some of the things she writes, like, I'm like, no, I don't like that you did that or said that. But she <laughs> owns it all of the time. And I feel like that's what this author evokes. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading this. I mean, we've read a lot of different things. Uh and this one was especially, I, this is what I was looking forward to reading when I wasn't reading it. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally also enjoy that kind of first person storytelling voice. That's not that far away from like the campfire story sort of feel. Yeah. Hmm. Well, cool. Then listeners, if you know of any other Google old fanfics written in a, <laughs> personal essay memoir style creative nonfiction sort of tone <laughs> uh send their those recommendations our way because it turns out that might kind of be our thing <laughs> yeah i mean uh, if it's well written man you yeah know. It, this was just a really well written story and the fact that it was a fan fiction also makes it made it very transformative from the original media in such an interesting way yeah Great. yeah I think so the next time someone asks you what one of your favorite books is that you've read, you know, in the last whatever time, you'll say like, well, there was this one Scooby-Doo fanfic that I thought was, <laughs> yeah, it really spoke to me. I would say that too. <laughs> it's very real though. Like it, this is everything you wouldn't expect from a Scooby-Doo fanfiction. <laughs> and yet it still retains its tether 
to Scooby-Doo in a weird way. Yeah, in fact, I'll go out of my way to say that, like, none of what I expected from a Scooby-Doo fan fiction was in here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think the most impressive (laughs) to me is that I still see it as Scooby-Doo in its own weird way. Even though it's so different. Even though it took till half the story to introduce the uh, conceit of the Scooby-Doo stories. Yeah. Right. It still holds. I swear to yeah. God, I don't know how, but it did. <laughs> so there you go. Go experience Scooby Dooby Doo. Where are you? If you liked Scooby Doo, where are you? Or doobies <laughs> in the sixties. Nice. Or just, <laughs> or just in general. Yeah, or just in general. Um. And I think we're going to close out this episode in that case. Mm-hmm. This was episode 87 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective. Scooby Dooby Doo, Where Are You? by Yorick Jones. And I can tell you where Scooby Dooby Doo, Where Are You? is <laughs> because it's on fanfiction.net. And you can find a link to it at bit.ly slash RFR Scooby. You're telling me they can't just Google Scooby 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 Dooby Doo, Where Are You? and then find it? <laughs> Actually, you can. I feel like... <laughs> really? Well, with the word fanfiction, you can. Yes, it's the first mm-hmm. thing that comes up. I mean, I have seen people recommend it online. Soon this is going to eclipse the original work. <laughs> I think the original work has it beaten by sheer volume alone. <laughs> Cannot be eclipsed. <laughs> the intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find this album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can find us on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook or Instagram at retrofanfic or fanficretrospective. It's going to be one of those two. Uh You can also send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com or leave comments or reviews on the podcast service that you use to listen to us. Or you could just tell all your friends. You could put up leaflets around town, I assume. Um, I'm not sure what you would put on those leaflets. Can we buy advertising space in a fanzine or something? <laughs> oh yeah, fanzines. That's the way to get the word out. Right. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Seriously. Just by advertising space on the side of a van. <laughs> <laughs> Drive it across the country. I mean, if you solved crimes while you're doing it, it would definitely get your attention. Mm. Absolutely. But the only way you can guarantee there'd be crimes to solve was if somebody else went in front of you causing crimes. I mean, that can be arranged. <laughs> <laughs> by Don't the way, say you- that, <laughs> <laughs> By the way, none of you heard anything, right? You, you can't tell, but I'm winking. <laughs> <laughs> We are just coming up with like the most cutting edge viral advertising ideas right now. Committing crimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. And then solving them Mm -hmm. and having people pay for advertising space on your crime solving van. I mean, anyway, I I got a great. I'm Amato. (laughs) I'm Tori. (laughs) I'm Dom. And I totally cut off Dom. (laughs) That's okay. Well, well, I'll just uh, delete that. So it sounded like it was appropriate. Got it. I'm going to start that again. We'll fix it in post. I'm a motto. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Stop doing that. Okay. We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other. 
Until next time, take care. Uh, are we not seeing our names again? <laughs> no, someone says Scooby Dooby Doo. <laughs> says what? seeing our names again <laughs> no someone says scooby dooby doo says what <laughs> how do you say it yeah red is looking at me now that's because you're speaking dog <laughs> i'm not sure which of our impressions were the least bad there <laughs> Red says they are all yeah, bad. Yeah, I'm not sure Tenor should be trying that voice. <laughs> ruh <Ruh-roh>, Reggie. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the guy that would be unmasked yeah. at the end. <laughs> right. Okay.